Well, this evening we're going to be reading all of Romans chapter 4. That's 25 verses, so I'm going to break the reading up into two parts. We'll read the first eight verses now, and then I'll read the rest of the chapter a little bit later in the sermon. Uh, Before we read, just a quick review of where we've been. Uh, Paul, in a lot of Romans 1 through 3, pounds home the point that people can't save themselves. And then in Romans 3, at the end, he makes this big turn, and he says that now a righteousness from God has been revealed, and God gives us that righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. And now in Romans chapter 4, Paul answers some objections to that point, and he lays out some more details. So let's turn to God's word tonight. Again, I'll be reading Romans 4, 1 to 8 now, and then we'll read the rest of the chapter a little bit later in the sermon. This is God's word for us, his people, tonight. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Well, I'm going to uh, organize the sermon tonight through four questions. The first question we're going to look at tonight is whether salvation is earned or given. Is salvation earned or given? Now, whenever we stopped at major intersections in cities in Nigeria, a couple people would come running up to the front of our car with spray bottles and little squeegees, and they'd spray water all over, and then they'd quick wipe the windshield off, and then they'd come up to the driver's door with this meaningful look. We've done the work, said the look. Now give us the money. Now I could appreciate that these guys didn't have a lot of employment opportunities, and so they were just out there trying to make, you know, trying to make a little bit of money. But I always had a hard time with that. For one thing, the windshield was often dirtier after they had done the work than before. I had a hard time paying for my windshield to be made dirty because I could do that on my own for free. But more than that, it always kind of rubbed me wrong that they'd presumed to do the work without being asked. And then they demanded payment for services rendered. And if you didn't pay up, they'd go to the next car. But on the way, they might kind of knock your fender a couple times just to make the point that you really should pay them next time. Now, of course, if somebody works for wages, they should get paid. If they've done the work, they're due the payment. That's just common sense. But it's still frustrating if you have someone come to you, do work that you don't want, don't do it right, and then demand that they get paid for it. And Paul, in these first verses, is dealing with that sort of presumptive approach to salvation. It was wrapped up in nicer language, but Paul is writing against people who had this sense that you could show up in front of God and say, well, I did the right things. I did this righteous thing and that righteous thing. I did it, so pay up. I lived a righteous life. Now give me my reward. Now for us, that sounds kind of silly. Obviously, you can't go to God and talk like that. 
but it really was a live issue for Paul and his audience. They were wrestling with how to connect the Old Testament and the history of God working with his people and the giving of the law and the coming of Jesus and what Jesus had done and how to live as God's people in this time after Jesus. And that whole set of issues comes to a head with the question of whether God's people are justified by merit, by what they do, or whether they're justified by faith as a gift. Romans 4 is really all about the question of whether we earn our way to being righteous before God or whether righteousness and salvation are given to us as gifts. Now, verses 4 and 5 are really the heart of this chapter, and let me read those verses one more time. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trust God who justifies the wicked. His faith is credited as righteousness. The most important word in this chapter is probably that word credited. You can translate it a few different ways, credited, counted, reckoned, but that word shows up 11 times in these 25 verses. Paul really wants us to get that concept. For those who trust in God, their faith is credited as righteousness. Those who trust in God are reckoned righteous. Those who trust in God are counted to be righteous. Those who trust in God are credited by God with being righteous before God. Now, this doesn't mean that those people are actually righteous at that very moment. What it means is that God chooses to view that person as if they were righteous. Righteousness before God isn't something that we can earn. It's something that God gives us as an unearned credit. In Christ, God gives us the gift of being called righteous. The technical term for that is imputed righteousness. And imputed righteousness is something that God puts on us. It's like a pardon. You know, the ruler of a country has the right to pardon somebody even if that person has done wrong. And that pardon doesn't change the fact that they've done wrong. It doesn't affect what they've done, but it gives them a different legal standing. If you're pardoned, you don't suffer the consequences of your wrong actions. You may be entirely guilty, but you are counted as innocent because of the word of the ruler. And Paul in these verses is making the point that those who have faith in God are pardoned by God. It's not that they haven't done anything wrong or that they've measured up to some standard of righteousness. It's that God, the King of Kings, has granted them pardon. Christians are counted as righteous people even though we aren't. God credits all those who believe in Jesus with total righteousness even though we aren't righteous. As we talked about last week when we looked at the end of Romans 3, true righteousness before God comes from Christ alone, not through what we do. So that's Paul's basic point. But you can imagine that some of his audience would still be wondering how this worked before the coming of Jesus. If people are saved by faith in Jesus now, how were people saved before the coming of Jesus? In the Old Testament, was salvation earned or given? In the Old Testament, was salvation earned or given? And that's our second big question for tonight. 
Now, when I was growing up, we built an addition on our house, and that took years and years and years to complete. And when you do that kind of thing, there are certain building codes that you have to follow pretty precisely, or you have to go back and redo it. And as that project stretched on and on, the codes changed. And so there were some things that we could do a certain way, but that we couldn't have done a certain way before or vice versa. So we'd have inspectors come and they'd say, you know, you can't do this. This doesn't match code. And my dad or my mom, who was their house, they would come out and say, well, no, no, no. It doesn't match the current code, but if you go back and you look at the old code, it matches that code. So it's okay, really, it is. We had some interesting discussions and a couple extra visits by inspectors because the way things used to be was not the way things were now. At Paul's time, there was a surprising amount of diversity within Judaism, but there were a fair number of people who thought that everybody was justified by works, or at least that people could be justified by works. So then you had Jewish converts who would come in, and even if they agreed with the point that we were saved by grace now, they might still wonder, well, what about before Jesus? What about in the Old Testament? And you had a fair number of Jewish teachers who insisted that if you look back to Abraham, the father of God's people, surely Abraham at least, maybe a lot of people, but surely Abraham at least was saved by his works. Surely this great man, this patriarch, this one who God had called and who God had started his people with, surely that man had kept the law and earned his salvation by being righteous before God. Surely Abraham could have been saved by his great works, right? And today even, there's still a way of reading the Bible that says that people were saved by works in the Old Testament, and then Jesus came along and God kind of changed his plan, and after Jesus, people are saved by faith. There's a dispensation of salvation by works, and then a new dispensation of salvation by grace. There's Old Testament salvation and New Testament salvation. Some people even say there's Jewish salvation and there's Christian salvation and there's different. Now you can look at the Bible and you can kind of understand how someone could get there, but that's not the true, full biblical understanding. Romans 4 tells us pretty clearly that Abraham was not justified by works. Romans 4.3 quotes Genesis 15.6, which pretty clearly says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Even great old father Abraham wasn't able to boast before God because he was righteous. And if Abraham didn't have anything to boast about, then surely nobody else did either. Being right with God is a matter of God crediting what we don't deserve, and it's always been that way. And after Paul makes that point about Abraham, he also draws King David into the story. And in verses 7 and 8, Romans 4 quotes Psalm 32, which is a psalm of David. And that psalm tells us, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sins the Lord does not count against them. Now you note that the psalm doesn't say, Blessed is the one who does not sin. Pastor Greg and I did a sermon last fall on Old Testament heroes of the faith, and we saw a lot of good things that people in the Old Testament did as they served God. But we could have done a sermon series on that same group of people and called them Old Testament scoundrels of the faith. Everybody is a sinner. Even the great, great heroes of the faith 
we're pretty terrible people sometimes. You can look at Abraham's life and you can see a lot of points where his faith in God was a little, little iffy, where he didn't quite seem to trust that God was going to fulfill his promises. And when you look at David, David's list of sins gets pretty long and pretty dark. When David wrote this psalm, he knew what he was talking about. He knew he was a sinner. He knew everybody is a sinner. If Psalm 32 said, blessed are those who don't sin, there would only be one blessed person in the history of the world, and his name would be Jesus. But what Psalm 32 does say is, blessed are those whose sin is not counted against them. Blessed are the people who don't have their sin rightfully counted against them. Blessed are those who are counted as righteous, even though they aren't righteous. Blessed are those who are credited with the righteousness of Jesus instead of having their own guilt credited against them. All the way back to Abraham, God's people have been saved by faith. Genesis and Romans tell us very clearly, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Salvation has always been by grace and it will always be by grace through faith in the promises of God. People in the Old Testament didn't have all the information we have today. They didn't know all the particulars of when the Savior would come and what he would do and how exactly Jesus would save all of God's people. But from the very beginning, from the moment that God found Adam and Eve after they had sinned, God promised that the Savior would come. And in the Old Testament, it was faith in that promise that saved It wasn't works. It wasn't righteousness from the law. It was trust in the promises of God. Now, in the Old Testament, that faith looked forward to the coming Messiah, and now our faith looks back to the Messiah who has come to Jesus Christ. But the truth of the matter is that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, all of God's people in the Old Testament, just like all of God's people in the New Testament and God's people now, All of us are saved by the same faith in the same Savior who makes us righteous today. There are not two tracks to salvation. There is only one way to be saved. There has only ever been one way to be saved, and that's through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's through the credit that Jesus earned on our behalf and that God counts to us. So at this point, before we get to our third question, we'll continue with Romans 4. We'll go to Romans 4 and we'll read from verse 9 to verse 25, which is the end of the chapter. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. 
For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the, who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring breathe. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it, is credited, it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So in the first eight verses of chapter 4, Paul drew examples from Abraham and from David to make the point that God declares his people righteous based on faith, not works, and that's how it's always been. And in these next verses, Paul deals with some questions about some markers of membership in God's people. What marker defines who's in and who's out? What's the marker of belonging to God's people? So can you, you can imagine one of Paul's original audience saying, okay, so we're saved by faith. Okay, even Abraham was saved by faith. Okay, but doesn't there have to be some kind of marker? Doesn't there have to be something that sets us as God's people apart from the people out there. Could it be circumcision? Could it be law? Could it be descent from Abraham? There's got to be something that we can point to and say this is the mark. This is the badge. This is what shows that someone belongs to God's people. Now, I've been reading a book by Ken Davis lately. He's a pretty well-known Christian comedian and speaker. And he told this story that when he was a teenager... Christianity for him and for kind of the church he was at at that point was defined by not drinking, not smoking, and not running with the wrong crowd. The markers of the Christian faith were no alcohol, no cigarettes, and no crazy parties. And one day Ken was sitting on his front porch and he was kind of thinking about this and it all felt a little dry to him. And his dog was sitting there with him and Ken had this thought, you know, my dog never drinks. My dog never smokes. My dog has never been to a party in his life. According to these markers, my dog is a better Christian than I am. Now, we always have this temptation, this tendency to make certain things be markers of the faith. And it's important that we have the right marker for who belongs to God's people. It really does make a difference what we say that marker or that badge of covenant membership is. And so in verses 9 to 17, Paul asks first whether circumcision is that marker, whether circumcision is the thing that you need to belong to God's people and to be saved. And then he goes on and he asks whether, promi- or whether, whether the promises come through the law 
or through faith. In the Old Testament, being circumcised, physically being descended from Abraham, following the law and all of the later additions to it, all of those were markers of belonging to God's people. And for the most part, up to the time of Jesus, most of God's people were the Jewish people, religiously, culturally, ethnically. So now, after Jesus' coming, people wonder, what do converts need to do? What do these people need to do to really become part of God's people? Do they need to become culturally Jewish? What is this marker that we can look for? Now, Romans answers that question by pointing to faith. Paul says, in the Old Testament, circumcision did not make Abraham righteous. Abraham was credited as righteous before the sign of circumcision was given because he had faith in God's promises. Just like baptism is for us now, circumcision was a sign and a seal of the righteousness that God credited his people with, but it was not the ritual itself that made people righteous. Even today, when we baptize babies, we don't use some kind of magical water. It's not the ritual itself that brings the salvation. The rituals are important, they exist, they have power as channels through which God gives us a sign of his care for us, through which God seals his claim over us as his people, and through which God reminds us that we have been adopted into his family, the family of Father Abraham. So circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism now after the New Testament, are wonderful gifts from God to us his people. But the point of the ritual is not that we get stuck in having done that ritual as a badge of membership in God's people. The point of the ritual is that it helps us turn our eyes in faith and gratitude to our gracious God who is at work in us. And in the same way, Abraham and all his children didn't become righteous through keeping the law. They received the promises of God through faith. And God gathers his people out of all of the nations through faith. God doesn't look around for the people who fulfill the law because nobody can do that. God doesn't demand membership in some particular cultural or ethnic group. God reckons Abraham's descendants not on the basis of physical descent, but rather on the basis of their faith in God himself. Abraham is the father of all who believe. The key marker of belonging to God's people isn't circumcision, it's not law, it's not who your grandfather was. The key marker of belonging to God is that you share in the faith of Abraham. It's that you share in the faith of God's people who depend on God for their salvation. God counts people as righteous because they have faith in Christ. And because of that, God draws all people from all the nations into Abraham's family. The gospel goes out beyond human boundaries, beyond the Jewish people, beyond our own nation. It goes out farther than we could expect and farther than we could even dare to dream. Father Abraham has many, many children around the world. And the true mark of being a child of Abraham is that you have faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ. So our last question for tonight, our last question from this chapter is where is their hope for bringing life out of death? In verses 18 to 25, Paul wants all of his readers to see themselves following in Abraham's footsteps of faith and hope. When Abraham and Sarah were old, when they were as good as dead, says Paul, they still believed 
that God would fulfill his promises and provide the offspring he had promised to them. Even when all earthly hope was lost, Abraham believed in the power of God to fulfill his promises, and that belief was credited to him as righteousness. And of course, Abraham's belief was well-founded and that man, from those two people, from Abraham and Sarah, old and as Paul tells us a couple times, as good as dead, God miraculously brought forth new life. Abraham and Sarah, beyond all hope, had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had children, and his children had children, and they grew and multiplied and became a whole nation. From almost the point of death, God brought new life for his people. When Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead, God brought new life. And then the focus shifts in Romans 4 from Abraham to Jesus. Abraham believed when he was almost dead, and God brought new life from that. When Jesus was actually dead, God brought new life for all of his people. When Jesus had gone through death, when he had gone off the cliff and down into the very depths of the grave, God brought him back to life. And if we believe in Jesus as our Savior, God will credit us as righteous, and he will bring us back from the death that we are destined for. Verse 25 tells us that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Jesus was given over to death because we were dead in our sins. And Jesus was raised to life in order that we too could be brought to life in God. That is our great hope. Not what we've done, not what we bring to God, not who our ancestors are, not anything besides what Jesus has done for us. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God credits us with a righteousness that does not belong to us that we could never earn. It doesn't matter if we do the right ritual or we belong to the right group or we keep the right rules when it comes to that question of whether we're saved or not. We can't come to God and demand salvation because we've done this or been that. What we can do is come to God and claim a place as his people because we share Abraham's faith in the promises of God for those who believe. That is our sure hope. Now, a lot of this text and a lot of the sermon for tonight has been a little bit head-focused. It's good, folk, it's good stuff, it's important stuff, but we have to kind of put ourselves back in the time of Paul, and we have to follow Paul's logic through some pretty serious theological territory. So now, as I wrap up, let me pull this forward and offer a couple applications as we prepare to go out tonight. First of all, and you've heard this here before, and you'll hear it here again, but we are saved because, what, because of what Jesus does for us, not because of what we do for God. We're not saved by our works. So if you've come here tonight and you're carrying this burden that you somehow have to be good enough for God to love you, you can leave that burden here tonight in your pew and never, ever pick it up again. Everybody who belongs to Jesus has a perfect spiritual credit score. I think we've all encountered people who will love us if only. If only we change how we look, if only we do enough good things, if only we do enough favors for them, if only. But God is not like that. God will not love us if only we do enough for him. There is nothing that we can do that would be enough to make God love us. 
but there is nothing that we need to do to make God love us except believe in Jesus. Because of the work of Jesus, God credits us with being good enough. If you believe in Jesus, you have a divine pardon. Even Abraham and David, even the best of God's people have been big sinners. But in God's sight, everybody who is in Christ is one righteous person. God's Spirit continues to work in us to make us really righteous, to make us clean and pure and holy and everything that we need to do. But right now, God has declared us His people righteous because of Christ's work. So you can lay your burdens down because you are saved by faith, not because you're good enough somehow. Our salvation is a gift. It is not wages that we earn through work done. Second, God is faithful to his promises and he is with us even through hard times. God does not let go of his people. Abraham had to leave behind his homeland. He was a wanderer for his whole life. He never really took possession of the land that God had promised him. And for centuries after Abraham lived, his descendants did not see the full fulfillment of the promises. But God still took care of his people, and God still takes care of us today. We can look at the example of Abraham. We can look at all kinds of stories in the Bible. We can look around at the people around us. We can even look at our own life, and we can be encouraged that God fulfills his promises made to his people. There are many challenges in this life. There are many times we have to wait and wait and wait on God. But in the end, God fulfills his promises. He is perfectly faithful and perfectly trustworthy. So if you're in a hard time today or if a hard time comes along, keep holding on and keep following God. Even if you're struggling, dive deeply into God's word and act, act on God's promises. Depend on God even when it's hard. Faith grows through struggles. So when hard times come, don't cave in, don't walk away from the faith. Hold on to God's promises. Act on them. Depend on God to get you through. And God will always, no exceptions, no footnotes, no qualifications, God will always prove faithful in the end. God gave his son to save us. God has adopted us as his children. God has brought us from death to life. And God who gave his own son for us, God who now credits us with being righteous and who is at work to make all of us holy, God will give us everything that we need now and forever. Amen.